New Testament on what happened when you first trusted in Jesus as your Savior, calling it the riches of divine grace. And I ask you to turn this morning to um, um, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where we find what God says through the Apostle Paul about your identity as a believer in Christ. There are so many things going on in Romans 8. It's an exciting passage. You might wonder, how in the world would I find Romans 8? Romans, isn't that the people that were in charge in Italy a long time ago? Rome, Italy. Okay, so here's where you find Romans. If you turn to the middle of your Bible, that's not the way. What you do is you turn to the back of your Bible. You grab about the last eighth of it. And um, if you end up in like the, the concordance, you're close. Because it's in the New Testament, which is a very, you know, the fifth, of the old, fifth of the whole Bible. And you're going to try to find the section where we're dealing with Paul's letters. Mine's about right there, Romans. So we spend so much time in the New Testament, and there's so much Bible before you get to the New Testament and the Old Testament. But anyway, Romans chapter 8. Now, every Bible verse has a street address. The street would be the book name, and the address would be the chapter number. So we talk about like Romans 8, 12, where I'm asking you to go now. The street address is Romans, and the, and the number is number 8. And the apartment number, if you would, would be the verse. We're in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. That's the way we've uh, taken, which originally didn't have these numbers, and found quick reference where we could get to these places. But the Apostle Paul, just jumping in, parachuting in without context, tells believers that we have responsibility in Romans 8. But it is because of our identity, and it is that we've been adopted as heirs of God. He says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation. We, because of all that's gone before, our salvation from our sins that we just celebrated in the Lord's table, because of our new position in Christ, because of the freedom we have from the indwelling and present, ever-present sin nature, we don't have to obey its lusts. Because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, he says we're under obligation, not to the flesh, that's your sinful nature, to live according to the flesh, to your sinful nature. Your sin nature is a problem, and it does tempt you, and it will hurt to resist it. It does, but you can. And not only can you, but you're responsible to. We're not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And if you do, there's a problem, verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, body and flesh are parallel ideas here, you'll live. If you, in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, are saying no to the lust of the flesh so that you don't carry them out, you've got this temptation to think this thought that you shouldn't be thinking. You've got this temptation to do something that you really feel like doing, but God said, that's not for you. This is called sin, and it's an inner problem that we all face because of the fall in Adam. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. And the death that Jesus died on the cross for your sins paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. And it freed you from the power, the enslavement to that inner sin nature. And we've read, if you've read up to Romans 8, we've made that argument. But you still have the presence of your sinful nature. It still comes a calling. You still have this a tendency at times to feel a pull toward personal sin. And it doesn't matter what kind of sin it is. Everybody's struggling with personal sin. I talked about this a little first hour in Psalm 51. David's 
psalm of confession of his sin. Sin is a problem for all of us, especially if you don't think so. There are the sins that people talk about in church, and then there are the sins that church people regularly engage in. And they tend to be two different categories of sin, and we really get upset about the ones that we talk about, and we tend to protect and nurture the ones that we are guilty of. But the truth is that whether your sinful tendency is towards licentiousness, towards having your way, towards wantonness, towards overeating or overdrinking or sex that's illicit that's not between a husband and wife, perhaps that's where your tendencies lie. That doesn't mean that the person that isn't struggling with those tendencies doesn't have his own problems. Perhaps your tendency is to go looking for people's sin so that you can feel better about yourself since you're not engaging in those specific ones. That's a very pernicious, insidious, subtle form of arrogance that we call self-righteousness. And it's, it's the plague of our lives. If you're struggling with self-righteousness, I didn't say seeking after God's righteousness. I said propping up your own sense of how good you are by looking at how someone else falls short of what you think is good for you or for them. That's that, now we're talking about church stuff. Not only when Paul lists the sins, the the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, when Paul lists these things, he doesn't just talk about pharmakeia, which is uh, the pursuit of demonism through uh, medicinal means, translated sorcery. He doesn't just talk about that particular illicit thing where you're running after demons through through substances. He's talking also about uh, strife. And dissension, jealousy, envying, bitterness. You know what bitterness is? It's anger that hasn't been addressed. It's anger that hasn't been rejected and repented and put aside. It's anger that's been allowed to go to sleep. It's still there and it it hardens into this perspective, this crust of malice towards someone. And it doesn't manifest itself as real, like overt malice. You're not, you know, slobbering over yourself to get after this person. It's just a subtle rejection because we had this past experience and it's an unforgiveness. These are sinful. God told you that he wants you to forgive one another. So what, what, what we think of that offends us in sin, what we get shocked about, isn't necessarily what offends God. And there is an overlap. A lot of the things that offend us and shock us do offend and shock God. And, and, but that's not the whole picture. There's also this other whole subtle tendency of self-righteousness and arrogance And a lot of the New Testament is written to address uh, this problem of sin that we're all facing. But you don't have to gossip about your friend because you feel like it. You don't have to share this new little tidbit that, oh, I know I shouldn't say anything, but I want to share this thing. You don't have to uh, think more highly of yourself than you ought to think in Romans 12. You can break yourself down before God and say before you, I have nothing but honor and glory and praise of you, and all I bring is need, and all you've done is satisfy my need. That's humbling ourselves before God instead of exalting ourselves and our self-assertion and our self-promotion. And uh, God says it's the great theme of the Bible. He is coming ultimately to take everything that's exalted against him and humble it, lay it flat, and everything that humbles itself under God is going to be exalted. And so we have lots of things that, that we, the Bible describes as sinful that we don't necessarily get offended by. And be careful about this arrogance. Watch, this is, this is a sin right here. This is an arrogance right here. I contend before God. 
that if you assert that your sensitivity about whatever the sin problem is, is more important than God's righteousness and how God is affronted by sin. When you're my thing, this bothers me, and you think more highly of that offense than what it's saying about what God thinks about it. Just think about that, that arrogance that my conscience is bigger than God's moral righteousness. It's crazy, but we all have a little bit of crazy. And what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 12 is you don't have to live under this domination. In fact, if by the power of God, the Holy Spirit in verse 13, you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death the deeds of the body. It means that I get this temptation to personal sin for my sinful nature and I say no and I walk by the spirit and it might mean I go for a run in some cases, gentlemen, or it might be a cold shower or it might be a change of pace or it might be a go get to work doing something like David should have done instead of when the kings go out to war, he's at home laying around looking at who's taking a bath on the roof. You're setting conditions and you're setting yourself up for success because you know that temptation plus opportunity equals a very bad set of conditions for you to win over the temptations of your sinful nature. So remove the opportunity. Change the direction so that the temptation isn't so evident. But anyway, if you're walking by the Spirit, you will not be carrying out the lust of the flesh, Galatians 5.16 says. In verse 14, Paul goes on to say that all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Does your Bible say sons and daughters? Sons of God. Well, this seems like a gender confusion thing to say. Why does he say sons of God when he's talking to all these women? He certainly is talking to all the women who are believers in Rome. Why does they say sons of God? Because Paul is thinking as a first century Roman in that historical context, and we need to get into his head about that a little bit. Sonship in their culture meant inheritance. When God designates you as his son, he's not saying in contradiction to Jesus being the son of God, He's not saying you become an angel, the sons of God looked on the daughters of men in Genesis 6. He's saying that you are God's heir. And so women, don't try to change the sex language in in the Bible to, to comport to your 21st century woke sensibilities. Let God tell you from his presentation, the Bible has to be interpreted in the time in which it was written. Sons of God is a reference to your inheritance. I can prove it to you in the passage. And what's true of you the moment you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior is that you're now adopted as God's heir. You are now designated not only the born-again child of God, but the child of God who has been designated his heir. Not every child in the Roman system would be given the inheritance of the household. But when the father would designate this is an adult son, who can carry on the family tradition, who can do the family business, who will not squander the wealth, who will take care of all the families working for our family business. When dad would say adopted in the Roman system, he wasn't saying you weren't my kid and now you're my kid. He's saying you have my name in the sense that you're carrying on my inheritance. And that's, I believe, what Paul's doing here, talking to the Romans. 
So you don't take American 21st century, 20th century adoption when someone's parents, it doesn't work out, and then someone comes in legally, and then they're not the child of the person, and they take the person in, the child in as their own, and then they raise the child as their own. A beautiful Christian thing to do historically, taking care of the widows and the orphan, and we call that adoption. That concept is not technically what Paul is speaking about when he says that we're adopted as sons. It's more that you who are born again into the royal family of God have also been designated in Christ as God's heirs. Those who, the natural born children, will receive the inheritance of the household. So you've been capitalized when you're told you're the son. You've been promoted. You've been honored and exalted according to the scriptures. And this is something that's far better than chasing after the lust of the flesh, than pretending like you aren't God's kid. To have a proper understanding as a believer in Christ of ourselves, we have to constantly pay attention to who God is and what he's done for us. To know who we are, we constantly have to be looking at Jesus Christ and knowing who he is. And in seeing him, that little subtle reminder, you're in Christ. His destiny is your destiny. His blessings are yours. His privileges are your privileges because of God's grace toward you in him. And so we have some conduct challenges in Romans 8, but it's based on your position. He says, all who are being led by the Spirit, that's the third person of the Trinity, it's very explicit, the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Nobody who is not born again into the family and designated heir in the household is led by the Holy Spirit. Nobody. No one who tells you, well, I'm not Christian and I don't go by this book, but I'm spiritual. Not the Spirit of God. There are lots of spirits, but there are two sides in this. Led by the Spirit of God, that guarantees, that demonstrates, if you will, in the passage that you're sons of God. Now, I'm not inviting you to fruit inspection. How do I know by looking at you that you are led by the Spirit? By my good works. By my pleasant, rosy personality. See, I'm happy. That tells you that I'm a Christian. It doesn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, some of the most challenging verses, 1 through 3, about Christian love works, even if I give my body to be burned. Without love, it profits me nothing. You can do the acts that are supposed to be motivated by Christian love and the power of the Spirit, and it have nothing to do with Christian love or the Holy Spirit. So I'm not inviting you in verse 14 to fruit inspection. I'm saying that if you are genuinely led by the Spirit of God, you are definitely one of God's kids. And the reason you're being led by the Spirit of God is that in verse 15, you've received a spirit of, you have not received a spirit of slavery to your sinful nature, leading to fear. Fear in what sense? Of God's wrath on your wickedness. We don't need to be afraid of God's crushing wrath on our sin or the eternal destiny of those who don't have Christ because we've received a spirit of adoption. So we're not slaves to our sinful nature, expecting the consequence inevitably of righteous God on 
sin, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Not only is it true that you have been adopted, you've received a spirit of adoption, a sense, if you will, that you belong to God and he is your dad. Abba, Father, is as strong a language as we can get to say there's an intimate connection between you and the God of the universe revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. In this case, specifically the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And in that adoptive spirit, you are crying out, Dad, to God the Father. Abba is the familiar for Father. You don't say, most of us don't meet our dad and say, well, hello, Father. Father, would you like to go play some golf? Father, it is time to go hit the sound, charter a boat, and go catch some redfish or whatever. Father, let's go do some great things. Father, uh, can I borrow some money? That's not how it works generally. We say dad in our culture. Some of you further diminutize father or dad to daddy. And little kids do that. Somewhere between dad and daddy is the Aramaic Abba. It's, it's intimate. It's family. It's informal. You know, it's amazing. I saw my dad wear a suit hundreds of times. He was a deacon in our little church. So I'm put on a suit. He, he was actually had a big frame. He was six foot five before the accident. And became six foot three and a half. Deer hunting accident. So even after losing height from a spinal injury, he was still taller than I'll ever be. And he had this massive, those of you that met him, his shoulders were easily, but just the bones, two or three inches wider than the way my frame came. I'm kind of a runt compared to my dad. He was, he was a closed horse. If you put a suit on this guy, he was just it's like, whoa. But you know, when I'd see my dad in a suit, I knew him. That's that same dad that would, you know, tickle me when I was a little bitty or get mad at me when I got older and I try to tickle him. <laughs> Same dad that would try his best to change a tire on a bicycle. Now, this is genetic. I've inherited this inability. And he would inevitably puncture the, t- the tube trying to work the, and, and, and rage about not having the tools. Same dad. And it was Sunday morning. There he is in his suit. And you know, interestingly, I never almost ever would call him father. He was all formal looking. He might serve communion in our church. Um, he might do all kinds of things, but I never really called him father. That wasn't the arrangement. We were, the, despite the problems we might have had growing up, and everybody has trouble coming up, but we had a great relationship where he was dad. He was my dad. At some point, I quit calling him daddy. I don't even remember when that happened. I, I rejected the daddy thing, probably seven, six, something like that. I, dad. But what I'm saying is that... Um, no matter what phase of life I saw him in, if I saw him giving a, a sales demonstration to a group of, uh, of businesses, I saw him do that once. Um, he was in his professional glory, you know, doing his, he's still dad. If I met someone and I said, do you know my dad? Everyone in town knew my dad, he's a salesman. They would say, oh, yeah, that's, your, that's your dad. It was personal, it was intimate. And that's how we are with our fathers generally. And if you're not, I understand there's problems. The human race is a horrible, tragic story of man's failure. And our fathers are no exception. In some cases, they were the worst villains that you've ever encountered who have hurt you worse than anyone else in your life. 
And that just goes to show the power God has given humans and the high responsibility we have to honor him in the carrying out of those, that, that power, those responsibilities. And so um, my heart breaks for you whose fathers were not good men, who didn't care for you, who hurt you. But your heavenly father is beyond the ideal. He's only righteous, good, loving, holy, and he only wants you to call him Abba, Father. I mean, he wants you to be intimate, personal relationship with him. And that's why he says we've re- received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we ca- call out Abba, Father. Especially for you whose dads failed you. Especially for you whose dads failed you beyond the fact that everybody's a sinner and dad dropped the ball here and there. I'm talking about you people whose dads were awful. You've received a spirit of adoption from God as heirs of God by which you can call out to your God as though he's your dad, Abba Father. The Spirit, that's God the Holy Spirit in verse 16, himself testifies not to our spirit, along with our spirit, that we are children of God. God the Holy Spirit lives in you And what he's doing is alongside the word of God, which we just read, he is testifying alongside that testimony that you are a child of God. He does it right here in this passage. He lives in your heart. He's in there forever. It's the spirit of God himself. And he testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children of God, listen to it. If you're born again in God's family, then heirs also. That's the adoption of sons. Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified together with him. How that condition works on if if we suffer with him. One way you know that you're going to be glorified together with Christ is if you're walking in his steps. The path that he has cut for us involves persecution and suffering. You're on enemy territory in a war that you didn't choose. It's an invisible war with actual armies arrayed against each other. And the battle is what we think and believe. The battle is the content of our convictions. How do you know what you know? One way in this passage, I know I'm a child of God because I've got multiple testimonies that I'm I'm his. And ultimately, I know because God told me, because he told me here in his word. If you know something that isn't true, it is a form of knowledge, but it has amounted to deception. That's the number one tactic or technique of God's enemy, Satan, to distract what the Bible calls all the nations. He's deceived all the nations. Those who don't know Christ as their Savior, in their deception under this prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, they are the sons of disobedience, identified with rebellion against God. And here's how rebellion works. It isn't me saying, I'm going to get him. I'm going to fight against him. It is simply... I will have my own way. The satanic fall is nevertheless not as you will, but let my will be done. 
It seems like it should be neutral. I'm not opposing God. I'm just doing my thing. But the thing is, as creatures that he's made for his purposes, we have obligations. They amount to righteousness, and the alternative is wickedness. And the consequence of that ultimately will be separation from God, from his people, from his blessing for eternity. But Paul says, take heart, you are children of God if you're being led by the Spirit of God. This Spirit that we've received adoption as sons cries out, Abba, Father, and God the Holy Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, we're children of God. So take heart that the path that God has carved out for us to walk will involve a death-shadowed valley, but we will fear no evil for he's with us. We are, as God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, going to suffer for him and with him. And it might be a little bit of light suffering, and it might be heavy. But if you are suffering for the sake of your Savior, remember you are fellow heirs with Christ. And what does that mean? The writer of Hebrews says he's the heir of all things. What is an heir? H-E-I-R. What's an heir? That's the person that gets it. He owns it. He becomes the possessor and the owner of the thing. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Now, this is not health and wealth gospel. It's just the reality that I'm in Christ. You've been marked out to inherit with Christ all things. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, fathers, we consider the riches of divine grace. We want to remember the way we received them. We trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. His work alone our faith in him. This is the arrangement that you've designed. And so, Father, we have proclaimed our faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead in the Lord's table. And there may be some here today in the hearing of my voice, perhaps online, that haven't made that decision, that haven't understood that the central issue in life is, what do I do about Jesus Christ, his work on the cross for me? Father, make the issue clear to our loved ones, our friends, our family, those around us, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. He loved us this way. You loved us this way. You gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That if we have the son, then we have the life. Father, we thank you that you demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ died for us. Father, he's our only hope. We pray for our family and friends that they would come to know him in your timing, on your terms. Father, we wait on you and rely on you for opportunities. Help us to take these things we've thought of today in terms of our position in Christ, our future to rule with him, our inheritance with him. Help us take these things seriously as we consider you and not walk away forgetting, as it's so easy to do, that we're your children and you have a purpose for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.